0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, from chapter 7, where we'll start reading at verse 7 and we'll read through to the end of verse 11 in chapter 8, with our text being the verses 5 through 11 of chapter 8. So Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So far. After the sermon, we'll sing together in response from hymn 48, the verses 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin to look at our text this morning, it's good for us to remember the place that it has in Paul's letter to the Romans, as well as the basic point that Paul is trying to make here. Leading up to our text, he's been speaking about the discouragement and frustration that we feel when we look at ourselves and at the kinds of things that we do. We're supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we want to do what God wants us to do, but instead we do the things that we hate. Now, what does Paul say to us about that? Does he say, how can you do things like that? Does he say, look, this can't go on. You're going to have to do a lot better or else you just won't make it. Does he say here are five simple steps to victory over your sin. Or, here are seven things that you must do and ten things that you must never do. Does he say, you're just not working hard enough, you're going to have to try harder? We know that Paul could speak pretty harshly sometimes. For example, think of the way that he talks to the Galatians, especially in Galatians chapter 1. And sometimes he does give a list of commands. He does that in Ephesians 4 and 5. And sometimes he tells us that we have to strive, that we have to fight and work hard to live a godly life. Just read the second half of Philippians 3. But there are no commands or rebukes here in Romans 8. There's no criticism, no harsh words. Here Paul speaks words of comfort and of hope and especially the comfort and the hope of the gospel of resurrection, of new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is fundamentally what God says to us in our text this morning. He holds out the promises of the Holy Spirit and he says, trust these promises and live out of them. I'm going to preach God's word to you this morning under the following theme and points. Paul urges us to trust in the promises of the Holy Spirit because, firstly, the Spirit promises to give us His priorities. Secondly, the Spirit promises to give us His purpose. And finally, the Spirit promises to give us His power. So, firstly then, Paul urges us to trust in the promises of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit promises to give us His priorities The first four verses of chapter 8 leading up to our text this morning close with the promise that is the greatest promise of the gospel. That's right, the greatest promise of the gospel isn't that we're not going to go to hell or even that our sins are forgiven. They are wonderful promises for sure. They're gifts that are more glorious than we can even understand. But the most wonderful promise of the gospel is right there in verse 4 the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. In our reading, Paul had cried out with frustration, frustration with himself and with his weakness and with the sin that lived in him. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we understand Paul's struggle here. It's not only the guilt of his sin, he's not asking whether God can forgive him, Paul is talking about his ongoing struggle with sin. He's talking about his shame and his sadness, his deep disappointment that he doesn't love God or his neighbour in the way that he wants to. For he wants to be perfectly obedient. Wanting to be perfect isn't neurotic or misguided. No, Paul sees it as a sign of spiritual maturity. As he states in Philippians 3... I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So to be sure, being saved by grace doesn't mean that your sin doesn't matter. Now, if you know anything about that ongoing struggle against sin, about that frustration, then you can hear the gospel in that promise of verse 4. Listen, the Spirit says to you, the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in you. You're going to be perfect. And that promise doesn't come with any strings attached, as in, you'll be perfect if you work hard at it. Or, if you can only do this and if you can manage to stop doing that. No, the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in you, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's how it's going to happen, through walking in accordance with the Spirit. Says verse 5 Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean, to live according to the flesh? It means that we pursue the priorities of the flesh, that we have our mind set on what the flesh wants and that shapes our behaviour. It shapes our personality and our character, it controls the way that we act and what we want out of our relationships, whether that's in our business or in our marriage or our friendships. And what the flesh wants is exactly the opposite of what God commands. God commands us to love to use our lives for him and for each other. God commands us to be each other's servants. God commands us to humble ourselves, to consider other people more significant than ourselves. God commands us to worship him, to live for his glory, to live a holy life, to find our joy and our pleasure and our security in him. Living according to the flesh, though, means I'm oriented and focused on and concerned about myself, about getting what I want. It means that I believe in what I can see, that I look for my joy and my pleasure and my security in the things that I see. It means that I'm caught up in pride and that I want to have power and control over the people that are around me. I want to use them for my benefit. It means that I even believe in God and worship him for what I think I can get out of it. And in Galatians 5, Paul says that it's easy to tell when people live according to the flesh. For the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When people live according to the flesh, that's what you can expect to see. That's the way things work, spiritually speaking. They're going to act that way and live that way because they have their minds set on the things of the flesh. And by the same token... Because of the way that things work spiritually, you can also recognize the people who live according to the Spirit. You'll be able to see that they have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. And what are the things of the Spirit? What does the Spirit want? What does the Spirit have his heart set on? You can see that in what the Spirit does. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and so he serves them. He is their equal. He's God, just as much as they are. But in his love for the Father and the Son, the Spirit subordinates himself to them. Maybe it would be better to say he commits himself to their agenda, to their glory. At the creation, the Spirit brought life to what the Father decreed and what the Son called into existence. And the Spirit serves the Father's purpose and the Son's desire in our salvation also, just like he did in the creation. What the Father decreed for us, what the Father decided about us and promised to us, and what the Son has set out to do for us, that the Spirit brings about in us. That's the Holy Spirit. He serves. He lives and he works for the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And that's what the Father and the Son sent him to do in us, to work for their purposes and their glory in our lives. And that's the shape that he gives to the life and to the personality and to the priorities and to the character of everyone who lives according to the Spirit. And again, Paul says in Galatians 5, you can see it in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And now, pay close attention to the way that Paul speaks in our text. Because he's going to explain this principle. He's going to explain why living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit work themselves out in our characters and in our personalities and lives. The works of the flesh show you what the flesh wants to do to you. And the fruit of the Spirit shows you what the Spirit wants to do to you. To set the mind on the flesh is death, says Paul in verse 6. That's why people who live according to the flesh get caught up in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Because the flesh wants to destroy them. And death is waiting for them at the end of that road. This is the great irony of the preoccupation with ourselves and what we want, and with our pride and our power and our control. This is the great irony of trusting in the things that we see to give us joy and pleasure and security. We think that we can only have a life if we serve ourselves and if we can use other people to serve our purposes. But that way of thinking and living destroys our lives, destroys our relationships. We end up alone, our lives full of conflict and anger. It makes us miserable. There's no joy or pleasure or security in it. That's what our flesh wants to do to us. But look then at what the Spirit does. He is the Lord and giver of life. Remember what Paul calls him in verse 2? He calls him the Spirit of life. He gives life in Christ. He nourishes life. He makes us fruitful. Jesus says in John chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to explain, saying, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit makes us a blessing to others. The Spirit makes our bodies a temple where God is worshipped and glorified. And the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the Spirit's purpose. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just picture that kind of personality. And think of what happens among people who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians... In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. And where everyone drinks of the spirit, the spirit creates a life where there's no division, where the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. David says in Psalm 133 that that's what eternal life looks like. He says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life for evermore. That's the life that God will give you and give us together. Because when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit and we walk according to the Spirit, The Spirit gives us his priorities. Now, starting in verse 7, Paul is going to explain what he's just been saying. This is why those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And this is why the flesh is hostile to God. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is a thing that we don't understand, the thing that we seem not to believe. God is our life, and God's commands lead us in the way of life. But we're inclined by nature to hate God. We're born that way. It's not a decision that we make. It's not something that we consciously do. We don't decide when we're young that we're going to do everything we can to oppose God and defy him. We just do. And we do it even though we need God. We do it even though walking with God according to his law is life. The prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God has shown us what is good. Yes, that's God's law. Those are God's commands. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And that's for our good. God's law is for life. And this is our misery. The mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind that is set on self, the mind that is set on pleasure and power, the mind that is driven by pride, does not and cannot submit to the law of life. This is Paul's terrible summary of what's wrong with the flesh. He says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But by the grace of God, that's not the truth about you, says Paul in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now remember that what Paul wants to do here is to convince believers that they're on their way to perfection, that they're on the way to the resurrection of the body. So when he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, he's not saying, I wonder whether that's actually true. I wonder whether the Spirit of God does dwell in you. Rather, he's saying, this is the very reason why you have that great struggle with sin. This is the very reason why you feel wretched, because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul's not challenging us here, he's comforting us. And so the meaning of if here is more like this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's how it is for every believer in Jesus Christ. After all, says Paul in the second half of verse 9, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But you do belong to Jesus Christ. By faith you are in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus by his spirit is in you. We said that our misery as human beings is that the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But this now is exactly the opposite. This is the very essence of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ comes and lives in those who believe in him. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is his ministry. This is what Jesus sent him to do. When he told his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And so you need to look at your struggle with sin, at the sin that dwells in you from this perspective. This is how you need to think about that sin which still remains in you against your will, that sin which you hate, that you wish you were done with once and for all. In a way, and I know this sounds very strange, but in a way Paul is saying, don't worry about that sin. Of course, we have to hate that sin. And we have to repent of it and confess it to God. And we have to ask God to forgive us for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul isn't talking to hypocrites here, people who tolerate sin in their lives. He's comforting believers who are grieving, who are mourning, who are discouraged because of the sin that they still find in themselves. And he's saying to them, don't worry that this might somehow mean that you're not really in Christ or that you're going to be condemned. Don't be afraid, because if or since Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, Paul says, that indwelling sin shows that there is a principle of death at work in the members of your body, and sin makes your body mortal. Sin exercises a tremendous destructive power. The wages of sin is death. But here is the gospel. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Your body is dead. Your body is mortal. Your body has to die because of sin. But because Christ has come to live in you by his spirit, there is a principle, there is the beginning of immortality in you. As a member of Christ you share in the power of an indestructible life. By faith you have already in principle been raised from the dead. Since Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Because, as Paul says back in Romans 5 verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Because of Christ's righteousness, God gives the spirit of life to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And this is the truth about you. This is the great new reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the new fundamental fact of your life. This is who and what you are in Christ. You are in the spirit and the spirit is in you and the spirit in you is life. And now let me tell you what the future holds for you. This is the great hope and certainty that you have in Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen again to verse 11. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Paul is suggesting that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was the Spirit, you might say, who went into the tomb and brought His dead body back to life. This is what Paul in Ephesians 1 calls the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The Spirit is God. He dwells in you. He lives in you and he will never forsake you. Jesus says, I sent him to be with you forever. And he is almighty. He is invincible and irresistible and unstoppable. And he is the Spirit of life. Jesus said in John chapter 5, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live That's what happens to you when you believe in Jesus Christ. And you have to believe what Jesus tells you about yourself. By faith you are in him and he is in you. He has established the principle, the power of eternal life in you. He has planted the law of the spirit of life in you and set you free from the law and the pattern of sin and death. Sin still has its power. Sin still dwells in your members, but sin does not lead you to condemnation. Because your resurrection has already begun by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us. And we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Amen.